Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Amen. Today we have two scripture lessons for you. The first comes from the Old Testament prophet Malachi. The second comes from the gospel according to Luke. Uh, they'll both be on your screen. They're there in your bulletin as well. The, the Luke text in your bulletin is wrong. That's last week's text. So you'll be a little better off following on the screen. Uh, but you can also, of course, uh, follow along in your own Bible if you so choose to read. Uh, these are from the New Revised Standard Version, beginning with the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. See, I am sending my messenger... To prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver And he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. From the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, And Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis. And Licinius was ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Yes, God, it is with thanksgiving in our hearts that we gather around your holy scripture. It's with thanksgiving in our hearts that we come together in fellowship and song and in praise as we give our offerings. It's with thanksgiving in our hearts that we move forward in this season looking to celebrate the Christ child once again. And so, God, as we do all of these things, we pray that the words of Scripture, that the power of your Spirit would speak through Scripture, and that they would shape our lives, not only in this season, but for many seasons to come. This, in Christ's name, we pray. Amen. You may have noticed there, as I was reading Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it begins in sort of a strange way. Uh, Maybe it would help to translate it a little bit into contemporary terms. And so if we were to take Luke chapter 3, verse 1, and we were to rewrite it in contemporary terms, uh, it would sound something like this. Uh, It was in the days when Joe Biden was president of the United States and Asa Hutchinson was governor of Arkansas when Rusty McMillan was Green County Judge and Josh Agee was Mayor of Paragould. 
And then being Methodist, we might add this other part. And Gary Muller was the bishop of the Arkansas United Methodist Church. Now, anyone who were to read that description sometime in the future, could be a few years in the future, could be decades in the future, anyone who were to read that description, they could do a little bit of backwards math and they could figure out when this person was president, when this person was governor, when this person was judge, when this person was mayor, when this person was bishop, and they could put all that together and they would conclude that we're talking about the year 20 or 21 or 22, somewhere in that general time period. But why would someone describe a particular season, a particular time, a particular year by using all these political figures and their names and their occupations instead of just naming the year itself? There's something about doing that, even when I did it right then, when I started listing political figures' names and started with that to open my sermon. How many of you got a little bit nervous there in your seats? You were like, oh, Lord, where is he going today? We're starting with politics, first thing, right? There's something about naming those political figures that that sort of sets a particular tone, right? And it sort of begins to shape the narrative in a particular way. And certainly Luke is doing something similar here. In our case, if we say those things, then we know as as readers and as hearers that we're talking about living in the United States, a, a major economic and political and military power. In our case, we're talking about living in the state of Arkansas, a southern state, a small state, a largely rural state. In our case, we could go further and say we're talking about living in Greene County, which is in northeast Arkansas, largely flat land, though it has this little strange thing called Crowley's Ridge. And then we could go even further, a town of Perigold, developed in the 1800s along major railroads, now a growing city just north of Jonesboro. All of those things would be implied in that description that I offered you to begin with, and that would also imply that these are the major realities that shape our lives. These are the political leaders. These are the economic forces. These are the people who have been elected that make our lives the way they are. In fact, we might even say that these people, those elected leaders, that they shape our lives more than our bishop or more than our pastor, right? That these people have real power. They make laws. They set economic policy. They change the way our lives function, and that's the reality of living here in this day and time. And so it appears that Luke is trying to convey something similar here as he begins to tell us the story of John the Baptist. He doesn't just start out with John the Baptist. Instead, he starts out with, it was in the reign of Emperor Tiberius, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was ruler in Galilee, his brother Philip was ruler in Atyria, Trachonitis, and Licinius was ruler in Abilene, and there were two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, we know a little bit from our own study of history that what this means is we're talking about like year 28 or 29. We're talking about the years right before Jesus' public ministry really gets started, around year 30. But instead of saying year 28 or 29, Luke offers us this big geopolitical military description of the situation on the ground. Why does he do that? Well, we we think what Luke is trying to tell us is that for Jewish people living in and around Jerusalem, for Jews like John the Baptist, that this is not a good time. That they are under Roman occupation, not just Roman, but Gentile occupation. The governor, the emperor, Pilate, Tiberius, that these people have great authority over the people of Judea. And that the people in Judea don't really have any political or military power. In other words... That long description is Luke's way of telling us that that on the ground, 
for Jews living on the ground in this day and time, things are really unpleasant. Things are really unpleasant. Things are not going well. The Jews have very little political or military power. And it's in this moment where things are going so poorly for Jews that John the Baptist shows up. That John the Baptist shows up. Morale is low. Things are disappointing and depressing. And so we get this prophet, John the Baptist, who comes on the scene. Today we read from, first in the order of the scriptures, we read from Malachi. Malachi is there on the left, and then John the Baptist is there on the right. Malachi uh, is the last book in the Old Testament, and that's important, right? It's the final word in the Old Testament. It's a short book, a prophetic book. And in the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi offers a vision, a hopeful vision, that the Lord will return. We think Malachi is written somewhere in the 500s. This is after the exile. People have returned to Jerusalem. They're trying to rebuild their temple. But Malachi says, the Lord will come back. The Lord will come to this place and will be among these people. But in so doing, he will come with the power of a refiner, right? That he will purify the people, not just the people, but the tribe of Levi specifically, so that their worship will be holy and acceptable, And then Malachi offers, you heard me reading there, not only is the Lord's presence going to return to the people, but there will be a messenger who comes ahead. And this is kind of a a pattern in the Old Testament, that, that not only is the Lord coming, not only is the Lord going to be present, but there will be some messenger, there will be some voice that comes ahead of the Lord, offering warning and offering description that the Lord is on the Lord's way. And so you can imagine how we have picked up Malachi's preaching that the Lord will return and there will be a messenger coming beforehand, how we have picked up Malachi's preaching and put it in correlation with the story of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist is described as a messenger coming before the Lord. Now there's about 500 years between Malachi and John the Baptist and yet their their message is very similar. The Lord will come again. The Lord is coming again. And so you need to prepare yourselves. In fact, the call of John the Baptist follows this prophetic formula that we have in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to. Right? That's a phrase throughout the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to. And then, and then some prophet will speak. And so in John the Baptist's case, we have the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist. Now think about how different the ministry of John the Baptist is compared to the situation that Luke has described, right? Luke says it's in the days of Emperor Tiberius and and Governor Pontius Pilate and, and Herod who oversees Galilee. It's in the days of all these Roman authorities and political powers, right, who have such such power and authority and it's really making life hard on the people living in Jerusalem. It's in those days that that John the Baptist began to preach a word. And so if we were reading there with some expectation, we might think, great, John the Baptist is here to set those, those rulers straight. John the Baptist is going to go to Herod and go, and, and go to Pontius Pilate, and he's going to line them out. But where, whereas Herod and, and uh, Pontius Pilate and, and those figures are, are located in these halls of power, uh, John the Baptist is called forth out of the wilderness, kind of this wild figure, and we might think that he's going to go on sort of this preaching rampage to line these authority figures straight. But instead, what does John the Baptist say? Well, he's in the wilderness, and he begins to preach around the, Jordan, the region of Jordan, and he begins to preach this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
repentance for the sake of the forgiveness of sins. Now, if we're kind of following Luke's logic here in chapter 3, that might have been a somewhat disappointing or at least confusing message. Because what Luke has essentially told us is that the world is dysfunctional, that the wrong people are in power, that they're making life very difficult on those living in Jerusalem. And thankfully, we've got a prophet, John the Baptist, who's come out of the wilderness, and he's going to set things right. And so here comes John the Baptist, and what does he say? He says, you need to be forgiven of your sins. Now, why is that a disappointing message? Well, it's a disappointing message because we we were probably hoping that John the Baptist was coming forward to, to get after these powers and authorities, to set them straight, to lecture them, to call them forth, and to, and to offer a, a God's judgment on them. And instead, what John the Baptist does is he turns to these everyday people, and he says, you need to be forgiven of your sins. What, what I interpret Luke doing there is kind of a, a sneaky rhetorical thing. He's saying, like, do you think the world is, is broken and dysfunctional? And anyone reading this would have said, yeah, absolutely. Do you think the wrong people are in power? Yeah, for sure. Do you think these Roman authorities have made your life difficult and it's a terrible time to be living under their... Yeah, absolutely, it's awful. You know what we ought to do then? We ought to seek forgiveness for our sins. You think the world is broken? Sure, it is. You think the wrong people are in power and they sometimes misuse their power and they abuse their power and they do things in a, in a poor manner? Absolutely. But then John the Baptist says, but what about you? Have you been forgiven of your sins? It's as if though we've sort of been set up, right? We know the world is broken. We know the world is terrible. We know the wrong people are in power. And and instead of John judging them, John has sort of turned the mirror toward us. It's kind of that old message, like if you want to change the world, then you ought to begin with yourself. That's sort of what John the Baptist is saying. If you don't like the way the world is, if you think the world is broken and dysfunctional, what about you? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Whenever I was reading this week and and thinking about this image that John offers us, I was uh, drawn to this story, and perhaps some of you know this even better than I do, uh, but I was drawn to the old story, the old western story of, of the railroad development, moving from uh, the, the eastern and then the midwestern and then eventually to the far western states. Uh, and, and, and of course this kind of rings true with us here because we're a railroad town in the downtown area and the railroad is so important to us in our own history. But for many years, there was not one major railroad connecting the West Coast, California, uh, to the Midwest. And so it began right after the Civil War that they were working on the first transcontinental railroad. And so it would be built in two sections, beginning in Iowa and moving toward the west, and then beginning in the San Francisco Bay and moving toward the east. Two different companies on the, on the eastern side and moving west, Union Pacific, and on the western side and moving east, the Central Pacific, and they would meet together whenever they got together, right? And so there were engineers going ahead, traveling and marking out the way and finding the best way and the safest way and the least obstructive way, and so they would build this railroad until they came together somewhere in the middle. Now, if you were guessing, which side went faster than the other? Well, probably the side moving from the Midwest toward the west, and why would that be? Well, that's all flat land, right? But those leaving from California and moving toward the east, they had to go through significant mountains and valleys. 
these pictures from the bridges that were built. This is in the mid-1800s, right? Think about the engineering that was done back then. This bridge over Dales Creek is a massive wooden bridge that was built in the 1800s so the trains could cross on the Transcontinental Railway. Donner Pass is a famous railroad pass where they had to dig through and blast out pounds and pounds and pounds of rock in those mountains in the Sierra Nevadas so that the trains could get through. A significant amount of work to go from California toward the Midwest and to work their way through all the valleys and mountains, all the high points, all the low points, all the rough points, the smooth points. I love this picture here. This is a wonderful picture where they met together finally in Promontory, Utah. They met together, but they didn't meet halfway because those coming from the West Coast had only gone about 600 miles. Those coming from the Midwest had gone about 1,200 miles, almost twice as far. But they met together in Promontory, Utah. You can see the two engines facing off there, and they're clanging champagne, and they're shaking hands, and they're celebrating. We, of course, kind of take roads and railways and even airline flight. We sort of take those things for granted. But that was not the case, right? Just 150 years ago, significant amount of energy and time and power to get from one side of the country to the other, specifically to get over those valleys and to get through those mountains. Luke puts the words of Isaiah in John the Baptist's mouth as he describes the ministry that is taking place. Isaiah preaches, and then John the Baptist preaches, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is part of John the Baptist's message coming right from the words of Isaiah. Now I want you to notice how the verb tenses change in these few verses. The first thing that John the Baptist says is, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And those are imperatives, right? Prepare the way of the Lord. This is John the Baptist telling those hearers, telling us today, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this is the obligation put on the hearers. Prepare the way of the Lord. But then notice how the the tense changes in the next couple of verses. You need to prepare the way of the Lord and make the path straight because every valley is going to be filled, every mountain is going to be made low, the crooked will be made straight, the rough will be made smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And those are passive verbs. In other words, what's going to happen in verses 5 and 6 is not dependent on you. That's not something you do. That's something that that God does. And what what Isaiah is saying in the Old Testament, now what John the Baptist is saying in the New Testament, is that, that God is going to do this. This is God's work. God is going to make sure that every valley is filled, every mountain is brought down, the rough ways are made smooth, that the crooked ways are made straight. God is going to make sure that all of flesh we'll see the salvation of God. This is God's doing. And so your invitation is to prepare the way of the Lord and to make his paths straight. I know we've kind of parsed through a lot of different things here, but I want to try to bring them together for you. This this is the good news of Advent. This is the good news of Christmas. This is the good news of the Lord's second coming, that that God is the one who chooses to be with us in this way. It is God who, who breaks down all the barriers between creator and creation, between those needing salvation and the hope of salvation. It is God who does this. God is the one 
who comes forward, lowering the mountains and filling the valleys. This is God's work. But your invitation, according to John, is to make the path straight, to prepare the way of the Lord. God is coming, whether you're ready or not, whether you want it or not, but if you want to be ready, here's how you might do so. And the way that John describes it is through the forgiveness of sins, through seeking repentance. During Advent, we always spend a week or two with John the Baptist, and in fact, next week we're going to hear a little bit more from John the Baptist. And the the reason we do so is we think that as we're preparing to celebrate Christmas, it makes sense to return to John the Baptist who was helping people to prepare for Jesus' ministry. But we need to remember that John's preparation, that John's message for us, is to be forgiven of your sins. In other words, if you're looking forward to when Jesus comes again, if you're looking forward to celebrating Christmas, to seeing the Christ child in the manger, to singing those Christmas songs, the way to get ready to do that is to name your own brokenness, your own shortcomings, and your own failings. As Malachi says, to, 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 to let the Lord refine your spirit and your soul, to cleanse you so that you can be made whole. That's our hope in Advent and as we celebrate Christmas. So today we have Holy Communion, and Holy Communion sort of gives us a chance to practice what John the Baptist is telling us, that we believe in Holy Communion that God is uniquely present to us. Not that God is not present elsewhere, certainly God is, but when we celebrate Holy Communion, when we ask God's blessing on this bread and this juice, that that something unique happens, that God is uniquely present to us in this moment. And if God is uniquely present to us in this moment, if God is drawing near, as Malachi says, and as John the Baptist said, if God's presence is going to be near to us in these elements, then we ought to prepare ourselves both to come to this table, to celebrate Christmas, to prepare for the Lord's second coming. And the way we prepare ourselves is we confess our sins and we seek repentance. And by cleansing our hearts, We are making the paths straight so that we might receive God again and anew in this season. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for your divine messengers who come with a message of hope but also a warning, reminding us that as you draw near, you draw near not only in worship and in love and grace, but you draw near to cleanse us and to make us whole. And so, God, this morning as we prepare for Holy Communion, let us pause now to confess our own sins before you in silence. Yes, God, we know that we are not a perfect people, that we are broken and hurting in many ways, things that we have done, things that have been done to us, things that have been left undone. For the sins that mark our lives and for the places in which we need forgiveness, we come today seeking your healing and seeking your wholeness, that as we come to this table, we might be forgiven, we might be received into new life. All of these things in Christ's name we pray together and let us say with one voice, amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparagold.org. May God bless you this week.